At the time of this recording, the world is in the midst of a viral pandemic. Many people are afraid. Many people are in isolation, voluntary or otherwise. Some are sick or will become sick. And indeed, some are dying. In this special series of the Guru Viking podcast, I ask my guests how to work with fear, anxiety and panic. How to work with isolation. How to work with sickness and death and how to help others who are also having those experiences. Neither I nor my guests are medical professionals, and this podcast is not medical advice. Fear, sickness, and death are perennial human experiences, and it's my hope that these episodes will be of use not only to those who are being affected now by this situation, but also of use to others beyond it. Yeah, so I'm going to talk about some numbers. I'm going to talk about transmission rates. I'm going to talk about possible number of deaths and how long this could go on. And if you're not in a place where that's going to be helpful, then you probably don't need to listen to that part. And or uh, you can hopefully in the links provide a place to skip to that's out past all that because it's not necessarily helpful for everyone. All these questions will be timestamped. So the first portion of the interview which covers a lot of Daniel's opinion as a doctor about uh, the virus in general. Uh, that is in the first portion of the interview. So if you look to the timestamps, you will see a point where you can skip that. Although be aware that some of that is occasionally referred to through the rest of the interview. That's true. So if you're feeling particularly fragile, this may not be the interview to listen to right now. So Daniel, thank you very much for coming back on the podcast. Wonderful to be here. So you have an interesting relationship to this uh, pandemic, I think. And not only as a meditation teacher, but also as an ex-doctor with a background in epidemiology. Isn't that correct? Yeah, that's right. Would you like to outline that background? So I um, was actually in a PhD program in epidemiology with a focus on infectious diseases. And I did all the coursework of a PhD epidemiologist and did my master's thesis. And the next thing to do would be the dissertation. And I just didn't do that. Instead, I bailed with the two-year Master of Science in Public Health and walked across the street and went to the medical school and eventually became an A&E physician, as you would call them, or emergency medicine, as we call them here, physician, which I practiced then as an attending physician for 12 years. But I also grew up with infectious disease sort of baked into my upbringing in that my father is a pediatric uh, infectious disease specialist. And so I grew up with stories about malaria and cholera and things as part of my bedtime stories. And just, I would read the Pediatric Red Book, which is their book of infectious disease stuff when I was a teenager and things, because it's fascinating actually. Uh, it's a weirdly intriguing read if you like that kind of thing. And so uh, infectious disease has been baked into my life from early days. And I've spent a lot of time uh, talking with my friends who are um, practicing emergency medicine physicians and my other friends who are PhD epidemiologists and people on the front lines who are taking care of this and reading very carefully. I spend hours a day now reading, pouring through um, Medscape and Physicians First Watch and New England Journal notifications and you know news from a wide range of various sources, both extremely mainstream and extremely alternative and everything in between. And so it's been very much a part of my life for weeks now. So that's very interesting. Before then, we get into the meditation specific side of things. What would you say after all of your research and from your expertise is the need to know of what we know? What do you really need to know? So 
Again, information sources are all questionable to some degree. All of the science that's coming out is coming out extremely rapidly without the usual peer review process, which can take months or sometimes longer. So everything we're getting uh, is slightly suspect. That's my first qualifier. The second qualifier is governments clearly have a stake in what the numbers are and what the death rates are and all of that, both economic and perception in terms of their levels of competence and all of that. And we know we, we are having a very hard time getting accurate numbers. So that's the next thing. So everything I'm going to tell you needs to be qualified with early days, sketchy numbers, even from the best sources. Uh, and so that's the first thing. The second thing is you need to make your own healthcare decisions. You need to coordinate with your people on the ground who know what's going on in your country, who know what your resources are, what your laws are, what the current their current treatment protocols are. And so anything I'm about to say would not in any way supersede or be a substitute for actual medical care or consulting with your local on the ground experts who are in the trenches uh, dealing with this thing. They will know it better than I. And so please don't, oh, some guy on a podcast said, no, you, your people on the ground who are seeing this daily need to be treated as the functional experts that they are. And I would simply do your best to take whatever reasonable advice they give you as best you can. So those are the important qualifiers. And this is also filtered through my own, you know, whatever information I've come across and stuff, which, you know, is in some ways pretty carefully thought through the sources, but yet um, is in other ways, you know, certainly not complete. So those are my initial <laughs> prerequisite qualifiers. But that said, what, what do I think is important to know? Um, one, uh, this thing is really infectious. My personal opinion, it's spreading as if it were an airborne virus. So if you look up airborne virus measles in an unvaccinated population, this has the mathematical signature of that. And it's a classic disease that you study when you get into infectious disease public health school. One of the first diseases they teach you about is measles because it's really infectious. It's an airborne virus. If you're in the room with it, pretty much you're exposed uh, because it's just that contagious. And it whips through populations with mathematical precision. Well, guess what? This virus is also whipping through populations with mathematical precision. In New York, it's doubling every three days. In Italy, it's doubling every three to four days. And some other countries, depending on whether or not we can believe their numbers, they may have slowed it to doubling every 10 days or something. And then China is complicated. And I get a lot of various data points. If we believe the official government story, they actually have kind of locked this thing down to a large degree, except travel spread. If you look at some other data points, I'm less certain of that. I won't go into all the conspiracy stuff or paranoia. I'm, I'm, it's not really my thing at the moment. But just realize the most essential thing is this thing spreads incredibly easily. You know, the notion that six foot distancing in a store is safe is delusional because this thing lives for at least three hours in the air, if not longer. So the New England Journal study that came out maybe seven or eight days ago, however long at this point, where they tested it to um, three hours in the air. But it's interesting, that was the only virus that they stopped when there was still plenty of virus around. Whereas all the others, they tested to basically zero viable virus on cardboard and plastic and metal. Whereas airborne, they stopped at three hours. And if you look at that chart, there's still plenty of virus. And they reported a half-life on that 
chart uh, in the era of maybe half an hour, which is still quite scary, actually. So you could be in a store with nobody in it and think you're safe. And someone coughed there half an hour before, and there it is floating around in the air. But I don't think that's true. If you look at their other graphs, you can actually compute your own half-life. And it's somewhere around one and a half to two and a half hours in the air. But that means a long time. Let's say someone coughed out a million virus particles or something. To, to how long that would have to be in the air slowly dying before you have none is actually many, many hours. So presume the stuff can linger in the air, on surfaces, on packages you receive in the mail. So what I'm doing right now is I'm simply taking all packages I receive. I don't get anywhere near the people delivering them. I you know, move them inside. I carefully wash my hands with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. And they just sit there in quarantine for three days. Um, and then we open them up and, you know, deal with, you know, whatever's in them. And so I'm not going out. I don't mean to be needlessly paranoid. I'm staying here. I'm in my house. Um, I'm lucky I live on 50 beautiful acres. I have a lot of space. So I'm blessed. I don't get nearly as claustrophobic as most people. I can wander around in the forest and basically be no risk as far as I know. But uh, the rest of the world is not so lucky. And particularly if you're living in urban areas, um, you're sitting ducks for getting this stuff through uh, the air. And while it may just be very fine droplet aerosolized, still mathematically, it looks exactly like an airborne virus. Doesn't mean it is, but I would, I would treat it as if its epidemiology were the same and its infectiousness were the same. So that's, if you possibly can stay home, do. Uh, that's that's my best advice to help um, stop this thing. And so that's what I've got. And we can go into more details if you have more questions. But that's my quick summary. Uh, be smart about this. This thing is dangerous. One of the most concerning things that I find is when I look at, I think it's Worldometer, where they're actually reporting all current cases, all resolved cases, and all known deaths. Um, the, while it is true, there are plenty of cases out there who we don't know they have it. They have mild symptoms. They never got tested. They're not being reported, et cetera. Still, of the known cases, uh, that, and there are some countries who have done quite good broad screening, like South Korea, of the known cases, we have really high death rates. Even death rates as low as 4% are scary, and it can affect young people uh, don't just assume because you're 30, you're necessarily safe. That is simply not true. Are you probably safer than an 80-year-old? Absolutely. But does that mean you're totally safe? 100% no. And so take this seriously. If if someone gave you a gun, you know, Russian roulette style, and it had 20 chambers in it or 25, and there was one bullet, said, spin this and just point it to your head, you wouldn't do that for, say, an opportunity to go to, you know, some store that you didn't really need to go to un unless you were suicidal or delusional. And so treat this like that. I don't mean to be needlessly alarmist, but as far as I can tell, this is a really appropriately scary thing and should be treated as such. So that's my first thing um, to talk about the virus. And, and I could go into a whole lot more details. I've been reading reports on its management and you know its clinical course and all that stuff, but um, that's what I've got so far. Other questions, thoughts? Was that helpful or hopefully of some benefit. Yes, it's very interesting to hear your take on that. Um, I think that's the practical advice for the layperson who's considering their choices. Is there anything else, anything you think we might be missing or anything you think, a take on it you think is not being seen or ought to be emphasized in any other area? Um, yeah, assume that you might be asymptomatic and still contagious. So even if you think you're safe, you may not be to others around you. And it's also possible that some people think, well, I had some respiratory thing 
already. It was They didn't test me. I didn't get tested. It wasn't available or I didn't bother to go out or whatever. And it was probably COVID-19. Um, well, realize this is also flu cold season. So there's still a ton of other stuff around, right? It's a normal thing to get colds and bronchitis and respiratory stuff in the winter months. If you're in the, you know, if you're in the Southern hemisphere, okay, you know, Australia or someplace, okay, fine. It's not your season right now, but in the Northern hemisphere it is. And so just don't go assuming that you've had this thing and that you're necessarily immune. And we also are not entirely sure how many strains there are. We know of at least two major ones and at least 100 minor mutations. We don't know the cl clinical implications of those for your own immunity once you may have had this thing. And we're still sorting that out. So again, level of caution is warranted, not just to protect yourself, but also to protect others around you, because it seems there are plenty of asymptomatic or very mildly symptomatic carriers who are still quite contagious, apparently for a while, maybe weeks. And this may be somewhat too speculative for something you'd be willing to comment on, but what's your prognosis as this thing unfolds? People are worried, I think, about the impact on health services and hospitals and so on. People are also wondering about the timeline, how long this sort of thing may take to reach any of its possible resolution points. So speculative as it may be, what's your current prognosis? Well, there have been a number of good universities with very good epidemiology departments who have done some very reasonable math and looked at this and compared it to previous academics, I'm sorry, epidemics with um, similar levels of uh, transmissibility and mortality. And very straightforwardly, I would be astounded if this was done by, say, next April. That would amaze me. Um, maybe like, you know, a year, year and a half, if you know, the 1918 flu is any measure. Remember this, we have the level of medicine of basically the 1918 flu at this point. We think, oh, we're so much beyond that. Yeah, maybe we actually aren't that much. When the ventilators, we will run out. So New York is already showing this, the, the epidemiology of what will happen, or sorry, the, the implications for hospital systems are clear. Louisiana is showing this. I just read a report from an ER doctor that the ventilation later patients are already spilling into the ER and soon they will have no ER beds. New York is already looking at doubling up people on ventilators and very quickly will simply be out of them. And once they're out of them, that means basically if you need ICU care and a ventilator, that means you would have essentially likely died without it. So all of those people will simply die and we will be back or nearly all of them will die. And so we will be back to 1918 levels where we have no vaccine. We have no effective drugs that we're certain of. We have um, no ventilators of consequence, and it will simply be the virus running amok in the population and people will or will not die just simply depending on what it does with their immune system and comorbidities and things, which is essentially like 100 years ago medicine. Um, and we're back to that. So I um, don't mean to be needlessly gloom and doom, but my considered opinion is that the implications for economies, for corporations, for governments, for freedoms, for supply chains uh, will be really bad. <laughs> uh, catastrophic is a word I don't use often, but most people would think of this as a catastrophe. Um, hopefully uh, the government that I'm dealing with here will suddenly radically um, reform its incompetent ways and become vastly better. I hope that uh, countries who hopefully have s somewhat more competent governments will do better. Uh, I am public health always has to strike a curious balance between personal freedom and authoritarian control. It is curious that at plenty of points in the history of epidemics, everybody has said that authoritarian control makes that 
definitely in some ways be true. Now, if you believe China's numbers, China is the only country that looks like they've really gotten a handle on this. I'm not sure I believe all their numbers, but that's a separate issue. It is definitely true that in authoritarian situations, you can get a better control on ap epidemics. This is simply a fact. It's, um, I'm a huge believer in people's rights and freedoms, but this is one of those cases where I'm worried that governments will reasonably um, adopt relatively draconian healthcare measures that may actually make a lot of epidemiological and public health sense. What I truly hope is that somehow we manage to shake those when this is all done. That will be something that will require a lot of vigilance. Um, yeah, and I truly feel for all the people, like, you know, I'm lucky I don't have to work and I can be okay, but I, I feel really, really bad for everybody who is, you know, wage, wage dependent and, you know, day-to-day -day check living dependent and, you know, working in the hospitality industry or something like that. Wow. Oh my golly. My heart goes out to you. I'm sure that super hurts. I hope the UK government is going to be more compassionate and better to them than the US government is going to be to hear, to, sorry, to the people here in my country in those sorts of situations where they borrow Twenty thousand, you know, eighteen thousand dollars from everybody that will eventually have to be paid in taxes, and give them twelve hundred of that directly back. That's that's pretty harsh, and give a lot then to big corporations and and people who had deep enough pockets to weather this reasonably. Um, wow, I, yeah, I think this is going to be unfortunately one of those defining events beyond nine eleven that you know, way beyond anything like that, that unfortunately truly changes the world, governments, people's relationship to government economies, uh, supply chains, uh, understandings of globalism and capitalism and what those things mean and their good points and their shadow sides and their terrible sides. And yeah, that's, so I'm sort of scattergun um, approach to comments on it right now, but the, so those are some of the major themes on my mind right now. Any of that resonate with you? What are your thoughts on any of that? My thoughts, um, well, I don't have your qualified opinion. Merely, I can only really be informed by people such as yourself and other epidemiologists and so on. So uh, I would have to reserve comment on that. Fair enough. Other than staying at home as best one can, is there anything else that you recommend people could do to protect themselves or to put themselves in the best possible position? Uh, going forward with all those considerations that you've raised about the future. Yeah, exercise, stay in good shape. Uh, you may have to be at home for months if your routine out at work or wherever you are involves being on your feet and now you're staying home watching the news. That can be bad for you. If you get this thing, you're going to need some cardiovascular fitness to withstand low oxygen saturation and the stress on your body. And you're going to need to be in good shape. So exercise, do some yoga, move around, uh, you know, pace if you need to. It actually may relieve stress as well, uh, you know, people, oh, you're pacing. Well, actually, they're the sort of back and forth, right and left oscillation of feet and arms may do some of the stuff, same stuff that the EMDR, anti-trauma stuff, back and forth. It turns out anything that sort of, you know, has you going back and forth this side, that side of your brain may actually help release some stuff. So walking is probably really good. I would emphasize walking practice, actually. It's very hard to get people to do walking practice, but I think for, for, levels of nervousness like this for staying in shape, for blowing off some steam, for just getting the body moving, which has other good biochemical effects on cognition and mood. I think that's really important. And eat, eat well. Like it's easy when you get home and you're suddenly there's the fridge and there's the pantry and there's goodies and you're stressed. 
see if you can avoid too much stress eating because you're going to need your body to be in good shape and you're going to want to feel good about yourself when you come out of this if you can. So do your best to maintain your body in, in good shape with good diet, good exercise. And uh, yeah, so those, those are some of the things I think about. Also skillful distraction, the notion that, you know, we have to face all traumas and all pain and all suffering just full on from a meditative point of view. We must, you know, notice all our pain and all of our angst and our sadness and our grief and our anger and all of those feelings just straight on at all times. I simply don't think that's necessarily a good idea for a lot of people watching funny cat videos on YouTube probably boosts oxytocin and improves mood, right? Sounds terrible, but so, you know, also don't be ashamed or afraid to do some of that. If you have any, you know, hopefully plenty of people don't, but if you have some sort of puritanical ideal that, oh, I must see this and I must see my suffering and go into that, yeah, take time to connect with friends. A lot of people are home now, reach out to them on video chat, see their face, see their smile reach out to family members, uh, you know, maybe people you haven't connected with in a while. They're hopefully they're home. <laughs> if they're not, tell them to go home if they possibly can. Um, and they're not some sort of a central infrastructure worker or someone who, you know, for whatever reason can't be there. So skillful distraction, communication, good social networking, catch up on those books you've been meaning to read. Uh, you know, uh, your creative projects, that's what I'm doing here. So if you see in the background, you'll see like a big speaker there. Well, I've set up my, my sound system here at home for dance parties that we can have for just jumping around and blowing off some stress to fun music. I'm lucky I have a big space I can dance in. And so blessed in that way. And I've set up, if you looked over here, you would see my guitars and some keyboard stuff and video stuff I'm setting up and planning to work on like the audio version of my book, you know, my, my main book and that kind of thing. And so that's what, uh, you know, I'm doing here. Uh, the other thing is making sure you get along with people. So a lot of you are going to be confined with other people if you're staying home. And most people are not used to spending, unless you're retired and staying at home or something like that, most people are going out and working during the day or going to school or going out to restaurants and socially interacting. And suddenly when you're at home with a whole bunch of people that maybe you were used to spending a lot more time away from, particularly if you're in an urban area, you have a small space, you don't have a lot of place where people can get some private downtime, which is very important, then uh, you need to be as forgiving of them as you possibly can. One of the real dangers is that petty annoyances and old grievances and things will come out and be amplified by the stress, and then that can easily snowball uh, apparently, um, in China, divorce rates, uh, when the quarantines, you know, have started to end in theory, assuming everything, all that's true in Wuhan and places like that have climbed substantially as suddenly people had to be home and actually face their partners, um, all day long. And so it's not that maybe your relationship didn't need some change, but it's also some of that may be artificial and just exacerbated by the stress of a situation where suddenly your routines are disrupted, you're grieving the loss of personal freedom, or you're grieving the loss of opportunity, or the high degree of financial stress, or you know the the, the media you know pounding in with appropriate warnings, but also inducing a lot of fear, and hopefully appropriate warnings. And so 
um, just be as forgiving as you possibly can of people. Make it an active practice. I think that will likely serve you at least as well as practice on the cushion, right speech and right action. Probably uh, even more important as we all suddenly find ourselves in, uh, at home. Thank you very much for that. So let's pivot then after what you've said to the cushion or to formal practice in general or meditation in general. Many people are anxious or frightened perhaps even panicking. And what would you say to somebody who came to you in a meditation context, uh, although do feel free to go broader than that if uh, useful, and they said, Daniel, I'm frightened, I'm anxious, I'm panicking. Yeah, so first I would actually ask about the rest of their lifestyle stuff and what else they're doing. Are they getting some kind of cardio in? How much caffeine are they drinking? I would actually first start with the medical stuff and the basics before I even talked about meditation. Because some even like 20 minutes of cardio a day where you're getting your heart rate up above 100 or 120 if your physical condition allows that is really good for stress busting. And if you can even sprint a little bit, anything like that, those kinds of endorphins are things and things are going to help because the body in a stressful situation has a number of possible options, right? So there's fight, flight, or freeze. A lot of people freeze and freeze is not good like flight or fight, weirdly enough, are better for releasing it. Like if you start just sprint back and forth in your room or something, do a whole bunch of jumping jacks if your physical condition allows it. Seriously, exercise, I actually am a huge fan of and would recommend because I think you're going to need some of that uh, chemistry. Again, skillful distraction is, is helpful. So then, so, and, and avoiding caffeine to, or certainly not increasing it or tr- reducing it a little bit. If you reduce it too fast, you might just be gr- feel grouchy and have headaches, but cutting back caffeine a little bit can actually definitely help with stress reduction. And so those are some of the things I would think about. And then I would ask, also ask about substance stuff and all that stuff, if it was a more complicated thing and their previous mental health history and like what else they've done for anxiety and what, what they found helpful in the past and those kinds of things. And then there's, you know, I don't mean to be all medical, but there are people who definitely get helped by SSRIs and things like that. You know, some of the, some of the various medications that are available, sometimes they really are helpful. And these are weirdly stressful times. It's not like those don't have their side effects, their downsides, their possible withdrawal symptoms. That's a whole nother conversation. Uh, but any port in a storm and as ports go, that's more reasonable than plenty of the other chemicals people turn to. So Uh, a lot safer than the vast majority of uh, chemicals people turn to actually. So those are some of the things I would actually think about even before I talked about meditation. Okay, now finally going into meditation. (laughs) So you notice I like kind of a whole picture approach to these things. Um, Now finally going into meditation, there are multiple possible strategies and you need to experiment and see what works for you. So one strategy is just find the pain and the suffering and the anxiety find it in your throat, in your face, in your neck, in your chest, in your abdomen, find it, go into it, sit down and see if you can actually just be with it directly. This is a very direct approach and this is not necessarily the best approach for everyone. If you've got a trauma history, if if this approach has been hard for you before, it will probably be even harder for you now because the sensations will likely be more strong. So this is not a one size fits all at all. But if you are one of those people that this is beneficial for, and you'll know pretty quickly if you are one of those, if you've tried this before, if you try it now, then going into it and just finding it in the stomach, in the abdomen, straightforwardly, and then connecting with your breath. I would say in the abdomen, although it's a little bit harder 
you can put your hand on your abdomen. I think it's grounding somehow to pull the attention down, to pull it down towards your feet, down towards your cushion, to pull the energy down and be gentle and persistent with that. So it can take a while to pull energy down. Most people say, oh, pull the energy down out of your head, out of your face, out of the, uh, right? Uh, even out of the chest and, and sort of pull it down. It might take half an hour. It might take an hour to, to sort of slowly, delicately, gently feel yourself coming back down, grounding slowly, delicately, patiently, thoughtfully, compassionately, wisely, um, nourishingly, and just pull it down and, and feel as you have to move through some of those tense areas. And some of that, ah, uh, because we don't like that, obviously. But if we notice it in the body, actually, the pain of it is relatively small most of the time. It may be uncomfortable, but actually, in terms of physical sensations, not that bad. And so realizing also that most of your experience is feeling okay, generally, unless you've got some, you know, to serious chronic pain or other condition, most of space is okay. Most of what you can see is, you know, is fine. Seeing doesn't hurt, hearing doesn't hurt, and the space you're in. So finding that balance of noticing the, the sensations in your abdomen, of the tension, of the butterflies, of the nausea, of the abdominal cramps, of the chest tightness, or whatever you're experiencing, noticing that, but also noticing that most of your space is okay. Your hands and your arms may be sort of tingly if you're breathing fast, but it doesn't hurt. It's not dangerous. Your feet, your legs, um, maybe, you know, your back, you know, plenty of, of your physical experience is actually fine most of the time, even people panicking. And so to remember that too, and have a balanced approach that simultaneously is not getting so contracted into the pain that it ignores most of your experience, which is probably fine, but also that is realistic and going, okay, I can be with this and I can slowly, gently, calmly ground down. I actually find loving kindness practices to be very helpful. So I do a lot of those. Uh, and you may just want to start with yourself because the world at this moment might be kind of overwhelming for some people. So often we start with may all beings or something. Maybe start easy, right? Because this might it might be a lot of like complicated feelings in here as you're trying to connect with the feelings of loving kindness if there's a lot of fear and stuff or anger or frustration or grief or whatever you're feeling. And um, so maybe start with yourself. Like it's hopefully, you know, some of us have a hard time feeling love for ourselves, but still maybe a good place to start. Or if that's hard for you, if you do have a, uh, if you're not very kind to yourself or you don't feel like you like yourself a lot, maybe someone you really care about or someone you really admire, start with them, start with the easiest objects and sort of work towards a little more broad, a little more neutral, maybe not a best time to go towards enemies unless you're really feeling up for it. If there's, you know, the, the people you blame for this or the government officials you feel have, you know, killed millions of people by their incompetence or, or whatever it is, um, or, you know, voters or whatever you're mad at at the moment, um, take, take that gently and delicately. Uh, and um, there's, there's a good book, uh, Loving Kindness, The Revolutionary Art of Happiness by Sharon Salzberg. I recommend it. She doesn't go into the level of taking it to the into genres and stuff, but her basic advice is all very sound and I think would probably be useful. Pema Chodron's stuff, really good. She has, she has a, whole a bunch of books, right? So just look at her stuff, you know, um, really good, good, heartful advice and uh, places I would look to. 
if you've got a bunch of trauma or anything, you might look to the work of David Trelaven, trauma-sensitive mindfulness, if you're finding a hard time in your meditation or you're finding that this is traumatic, because this is traumatic, right? At best, this is low-level trauma. At worst, it could be very, very hard for people. And there's a whole toolkit in there of, of skillful advice that you might find of some value. And so those are some of the places I would look for some of that. And walking meditation, space is okay. Walking is okay. It feels good. If you have that restlessness, move. Um, our body processes trauma by moving. It is good for us. And so if you're feeling restless, don't be afraid to pace. Don't be afraid to walk back and forth. And it, it helps to, and the body is an easy object when it's moving. It's much harder to get distracted in theory, at least. And I think it helps us work through things. So, so read up on walking practices and and you know basic instructions you know noticing the feet or just noticing the body moving through space or even noticing just like the parallax of the room you're moving in as the wall comes closer as things if you don't really want to be in the body as much the visual field is a cool object and totally valid so those are some of the just sort of basic meditation bits of advice that i might give to someone the last bit that people are not going to like and so i already know you're i'm going to get some flack for saying this um, is equanimity. And equanimity is a practice that rings oddly to the Western ear. And equanimity, traditionally, the phrases are, all beings are the true heirs of their karma. Their happiness depends upon their actions and not upon my wishes for them. It should be counterbalanced by the other three Brahma Viharas to, to make a more complete picture. So on its own, it seems kind of harsh or stark or something. And that's actually its near enemy. So the near enemy of equanimity, where we say, look, what happens to people is what happens to people. This is their karma. Um, it, it, A, the, the concept of karma needs to be taken in sort of the vast cosmological context of the tradition in which it arose, where we all lived countless bazillions of lives and been everything, been murderers and gods and maras and, and you know, ants and, and Every, you know, every, all kinds of strange creatures and demons and, you know, and beautiful beings and kind people and mean people. And we've been all of that. And so in the Indian sort of karmic cosmological context, this is just one of a, a ridiculously large number of lives, sort of a grain of sand on a beach, if you will. But that perspective can seem very harsh or cruel or unkind. That said, the wisdom of equanimity properly appreciated is still of value because this is going to be a mess, right? Already it's a staggering mess, and it's going to be a vastly worse one. If it's as bad as some people are predicting, millions and millions will die. And that's, um, you know, what the epidemiology at the moment is looking like. And so I don't mean to scare anyone, but that's just what the best estimates from the best departments are looking like now. And being able to have a sense of equanimity around that, that doesn't go into the near enemy of indifference, right? That's the near enemy of equanimity. It's sort of deadening imposter. There's a way to sort of understand what has happened and accept it. That's sort of like out past, you know, in the five stages of grief, which we're all going to be going through as well. There's denial, which is sort of a lot of government started with that one and the public as well, a lot of people. Um, and then anger, right? Bargaining. We're going to see a lot. Oh, maybe if we just do this, maybe if we just do that, maybe we don't have to shut down the economy. Maybe we, you know, maybe we can save the stock market. Maybe we can, you know, continue with crony capitalism or whatever. <laughs> maybe all this, maybe we don't have to give people public health after all, like, you know, bargaining. And then, um, you know, so uh, we've got denial, anger, uh, you know, bargaining, grief, 
right? Which is the hard one to come to. We don't like to cry, a lot of people. We don't like to shed tears. We don't like to to honestly curl up in a ball and, and actually feel it and go, ah, fuck, you know? Um, and so, uh, and then acceptance. And that acceptance component can sort of occur in teeny stages all the way, because we're constantly moving through all of these. And these are not a linear progression. It's a cycle, and we may have elements of all of those. But equanimity is part of that acceptance part in the healthy way, rather than the, uh, the sort of cruel or heartless, indifferent way. And there is going to have to be some acceptance of this that comes. And so if you're the kind of person who can appreciate equanimity for what it is and you know, do your best to compensate for the shadow sides that can develop in terms of coldness or indifference because of it, equanimity practices, I think, as a part of the rest of it can be a very healthy part of what's going on right now if you can hold them in a proper balance. So that would be another one I would recommend for those who are up for it. And what would the way to practice that? What would you recommend? Would that be the Brahma Vihara technique using that method of repeating the phrase? Yeah. So you would start with the phrases, uh, start with people you care about and expand out, um, you know, more broadly as you feel it. And you would cultivate a feeling of calm, peaceful, but accepting neutrality. And traditionally, this would actually progress through jhanas. So if you're a practitioner that's got a little more oomph, then you would actually take the phrases and to the degree that you're able to maintain it, you know, all beings are the true heirs of their karma. Their, you know, happiness depends upon my actions and not upon, sorry, it depends upon their actions and not upon my wishes for them. Uh, uh, then that that you tune into that feeling itself, that feeling of expansive acceptance. And as you tune into that feeling, it can actually start to take on milder, if you're a stronger practitioner in better circumstances, stronger jhanic qualities. And eventually, traditionally, you would take this all the way to the fourth jhana, which I don't want to get into some term war thing about what constitutes jhana and you know the, the super deep jhana people only, this ridiculously long-lasting, you know, thing is genre or whatever, but you may have some genre qualities come in that, that clearly are in a different state that feels more peaceful, more expansive, more open, more steady, and eventually comes to this sort of nice, calm neutrality that even though it's neutral, actually feels good in some weird way. Uh, like clear water can taste very good, um, but it doesn't really have much flavor, but yet something is really nice about it. Something like that. And so you would start with the phrases, tune into the bodily feelings, tune into space and expansiveness, and slowly move through hopefully cultivated genre factors until you get to, you know, the stronger ones. And then you get into the cooler bliss of the third and out and wider. And then eventually, hopefully the fourth, if you've got that kind of capability, can settle in. And then resting in that feeling and letting whatever else arises move through it can be very healthy and healing. And you don't have to feel guilty if you take half an hour, an hour, however many hours you have during the day, or even 10 minutes to have some space and go, okay, I accept this. I don't have to feel grief for all beings at all times. I don't have to be in terror at all times. I don't have to be anxious at all times. You can give yourself a break. You'll still likely be okay. And just remind yourself of that, that if you don't take pauses from the stress, uh, it is toxic. Cortisol is not your friend. Uh, you know, except in the very short term. In the short term, cortisol is your friend in a flight or fight response, but long term, it's just poison. 
And uh, I, I know this firsthand as an ER doctor, because you have cortisol all day long most days, and uh, it's, it's not good for you. So to the degree that you can reduce that, to the degree you will be a physically and hopefully mentally and emotionally healthier person. So taking breaks from the stress when you possibly can, it, it, while you're still maintaining and doing what you need to do is helpful. Thank you. That's wonderful. All right. Something, uh, something else that you have, I think, multiple angles of experience on, which is sickness. Uh, you yourself have actually come close to death on a number of occasions with, with various illnesses. I recall that uh, incident that you described on our last podcast together, where you were in India and yeah. uh, became very, very sick. Of course, also you're being a doctor uh, in the ER departments. You see many sick people and yeah. you have a meditation experience as well, which is an, another angle on that, on that uh, subject of sickness. So many people are becoming sick. Many others... Uh, will become sick of something if it's not COVID-19. What advice do you have for someone who would say, come to you and say, Daniel, I've been diagnosed with a sickness or Daniel, I am indeed sick? Well, so it's a huge, broad question, obviously. Um, uh, wow, where to even begin? It so much depends on the person. So like that, because you have to tailor it to where they are, what's going on with them, where they are in their own acceptance of that where they are on the stages of grief process, what kind of information they're up for handling, because not everybody is up, up for lots of information at all times. So I also used to work at the National AIDS Hotline. So I actually used to work um, for a company that worked for the CDC and worked at the National AIDS Hotline in the mid 90s. So 95, uh, sorry, 96 through 97, sorry. And uh, spent a year online talking to people about that epidemic and you, you get a lot of training before you go online. We trained for a month in skillful communication and listening and trying to tailor appropriate information to people. And one of the concepts they have there is the ocean of fear. And you have to figure out if someone is where they are in relationship to the ocean of fear. Are they drowning in the ocean of fear? Are they treading water in it? Or are they floating above it? And if they're Treading water, you have to be very careful with the sort of facts you give them. And you have to focus more on coping skills and what's their social support and those kinds of things and their mental capacity to receive and properly hold new information. And if they're drowning in the ocean of fear, then the instruction there, which I, we all found worked very well, is you have to be very, very limited in the, the sort of facts and numbers and uncertainties that you give people because they will fixate on the scary details and the one case that tested, you know, back then it was like the one case that had, you know, took over six months to show up on a test and they were still positive and, you know, those kinds of things. And maybe they still have it. And so, so I have a lot of experience dealing with that epidemic through an, a year online as that being my job. And so uh, advice in terms of, you know, if someone is sick, you first have to sort of figure out a bunch of things about them in terms of where they are and emotionally where they are and tailor information to them. So also if you're caring for loved ones, if your loved ones get sick, you have to be careful with this. Um, the next thing is empathic listening and being able to listen and hear what people need. So if you yourself are hanging out with other people, take time to listen to them. It's very easy when we all get in stress and helper and rescuer mode to try to help people that we give them a lot of information or a lot of advice or 
um, have our own ideas about what they need. And it's not that all of those may not have some degree of real validity and truth and utility, but um, uh, we have to ask the questions of what do they need? What are you feeling? How are you relating to this right now? And so it's very hard for me to give generic advice because I don't know the people I'm listening to. And even at the beginning of this podcast, I started with a lot, you know, a bunch of numbers and some scary things that may not have been entirely appropriate for everybody listening to this if they're in a really bad place at that moment. And I'm sorry about that. So that's, that's part of the trouble with generic advice is you have to sort of know your audience. And that's one of the joys of being able to be an in-the-field clinician is you actually get to sit with a person, get a sense of who they are, how they relate to things, what kind of language they use, what kind of paradigms they're coming from, what sort of models of disease and health health are comfortable for them. You know, I, I deal obviously in the meditation world I and being yet being a doctor, I deal with a lot of people who have wildly different conceptions of what's reasonable medicine, of what skillful treatment, of even how to think of illness and disease from extremely biochemical and allopathic paradigms to the farthest out of the magical new age, uh, religious, spiritual, et cetera, energetic, um, karmic, et cetera, ways of viewing things. And so you also, you have to respect that people are coming to this from very, very different traditions and have some appreciation that your way of looking at this or where you are in the stages of grief or what you think you would need if you were in that situation may not be what, what that other person needs right then. So empathic listening and trying to figure out their health paradigms and having some respect for that, right? So I realize that some of the views I've expressed here may be totally different from your views or your understandings or appreciation of the virus. And I'm sorry if any of that is jarring or, or then, oh, he's just a quack or, oh, he doesn't understand the, this, this th you know, theory about where it came from or, you know, whatever, or he's just, you know, part of the, you know, repeating the mainstream media stuff or, oh, he sounds too paranoid, right? All of those reactions are possible. And I can't know from this side, which of those you are, but if you're, uh, you know, if you're, it's easier to tell people like how to deal with other people who are dealing with this. If you're dealing with other people who are dealing with this, just try to keep some of that in mind and be respectful of where they are in their grieving process and where they are in terms of their medical paradigms and what they think they need then, even if it's not what you would necessarily think is best for them. So that is easier to say that, but the advice to the person, wow, because I'm so used to tailoring it. I'm so used to tailoring it to people. It's really hard to know what to do generically. In that case, perhaps I could narrow it down a little bit more and give you a, a somewhat profile of a person. Uh, let's say it's, it's somebody who is familiar with your work, mastering the core teachings of the Buddha, and is, I suppose, as the phrase is, pragmatic dharma informed sort of a person, someone who might already be interested in what you specifically would have to say to them as a meditator. Something like that. So, so perhaps they've they've done some of the methods outlined in your book. They may have uh, achieved various different results. They may uh, be pra have practiced certain concentration things. Does that help at all if we narrow it down to someone who's a student of yours, perhaps even in the sense of following the way you think and being informed by the way you approach meditation? Yeah. So three trainings, right? First, remember all three trainings. And the biggest one we need is training in ethical behavior or morality, whatever you want to call it, uh, Sila or Sheila, right? So we need to figure out how to be kind and responsible. We need to figure out how to take care of each other and what that's going to look like for you specifically, I don't know. 
Um, I would be very wary of people who think that meditation is going to solve all this or even some substantial fraction of this. Right. This this is a very real world problem. We need a lot of very real world functional solutions in terms of how we speak, act and think. That's going to be 90 percent of this. So that's my first thing that needs to be the focus where the energy is. Uh, unless you're a monastic and your your job, your role in society is to stay out of it to whatever degree and stay above the fray and and have a deep practice to, as a support for others. Okay, cool. Most of the rest of us are going to need a lot of practical, real-world advice and, uh, you know, trying to keep from transmitting this and all of that. So that's the first thing I would say from a pragmatic point of view. <laughs> the next is don't neglect jhana practice, right? Being able to calm down, as we were talking about, and getting into some jhanic factors or some serious stuff is really healthy. If you've got 30 or, you know, 60 minutes a day, to just write some of that stuff on your brain, definitely do if you possibly have the time for it um, and you can spare it in you know, child or elder care or whatever you're doing or preparations or work from home or whatever you need, take some time. I think that that is going to make people's immune systems uh, less reactive and less keyed up. So some of the more fascinating stuff I've been uh, looking at recently is bat, bat immunology versus human immunology. So this is it's just, I just tweeted something out if you want to follow my Twitter feed, it's fascinating. But looking at how bats have a lot of things that make them not have the crazy over-the-top cascade of immune storm that we get into as humans for these same viruses. Ebola doesn't do terrible things to bats. COVID you know, you know, uh, sorry, uh, SARS and, you know, SARS-CoV-2 don't seem to do terrible things to bats. And that's because their immune system doesn't go totally crazy when they get into them. So the way this generally is going to get you actually is your own immune chemistry, you know, IL-6 and TNF-alpha and whatever interle interleukins and um, things are being pumped out and immune chemicals and, and, you know, the killer cells going out and, you know, torching other cells with peroxides and, and all of that stuff. So it's actually our own immune response that a uh, strong immune response that seems to cause a lot of the damage and the problem in a way that it doesn't in bats. And I can, it is almost certain that meditation and calming down and a calm mind will in some ways modulate immune function. Right. So there's plenty of studies that that show that there are immune modulating effects of a calmer, clearer, happier mood and mind. So if I can tell you, if I get this, I will be doing as much genre practice as I possibly can. Uh, and calming down and bringing my immune system down and trying to keep it in check and trying to keep it like calm down, settle in bring it down. I have no idea if that will work, but that will definitely be my strategy based on what I know about immunology and how mood modulates it. And whether or not that will have clinical efficacy, I don't have trials of that, but it's it would be, if I get this, that's what I will try. Uh, so that's the next thing. And then insight practice, obviously. If, you know, insight practice can be an edgy ride, you know, impermanent suffering, no self, 
unless you're a strong practitioner and you know a stream entry or something and cycle naturally through those things, okay, that's one thing. But if you're below stream entry and like most of the people I talk to where you cross the arising and passing away and you're now some sort of moderate dark nighty person who's now super into meditation and trying to crack this thing and figure it out and caught in that sort of weird renunciate but excited about meditation but don't like meditation but really do, but that sort of strange in between, you know, weird mix of zealous and, uh, you know, or something, which is a lot of the people that come to me, right, trying to figure out how to get stream entry. If you're one of those people, like, wow, just just be careful with piling on heavy investigation of suffering and stuff in the face of this, right? Just be gentle with yourselves. Don't fry yourselves. Don't cook yourselves. Don't go balls to the wall future mind on stream entry because now I've got to get it before I die or whatever. That's just a recipe for cooking yourself. Focus on this moment, not some future goal. Focus on this space that you're in, the room you find yourself in, the house, the, the nature, the wherever. Right now, um, likely much more helpful than some over-the-top hyper-zealous push for some attainment to save you from, you know, COVID-19. Um, just my best advice, like just moderation, reasonable, please. Uh, that would, you know, that, yeah, unless... You know, a few people can take that in the face of stuff like this and that's appropriate for them. Okay. But if you start getting more and more edgy and irritated and like, just don't go there. Um, then there's another one I like a lot, Fire Casino, which is, you know, if you find some of my stuff recently, I just, you know, for example, so far this year, I did two, three week Fire Casino retreats with a week in between them. It's a lot of fun. But we we uh, came up with one of the, and this was before the virus was really starting to be a mess. We were kind of watching it and going, okay. And it was interesting. I was in Bavaria in this house in rural Bavaria when cases started showing up there, some of the first cases in Germany. And it was actually just like 50 kilometers from us or something. We were like, wow, it's here. And that was the first of those two retreats. So we got to watch this. Um, but even without that, even practices like the fire casino, which seem just like colors and you sit on a you know cushy couch and you just look at a candle and you look at your eyelid colors and stuff. The tagline we, we started coming up with, which is not obviously going to be good for advertising, but was, you know, come for the magic, stay for the suffering. <laughs> right? Colors and I'll see some patterns and some fractals, maybe some sacred geometry. Yeah, except it's going to bring up insight stages like the rest of them. And you're going to have to deal with dark nighty stuff like the rest of the stages. And that's just life. That's part of the meditation journey. And so even if you're going into a practice that you think is going to be, you know, far outside of the body and just really trippy and kind of cool, just remember usually about three to five days in the murk and the darkness and the dark night stages start hitting people. And that's what I found on all of these retreats I've done. And so if that starts happening to you, um, particularly if you start getting weird or wiggy, make sure you have some external support for that, some people you can check in with. If you suddenly decide, oh, this is a great time to do my hyper intense push for stream entry home retreat. Yeah, just make sure you have spotters. Like even when I go on retreat, I make sure I'm on retreats with people who know how to do basic trip sitting, right? Who know how to handle someone who may be in a volatile place um, from what they've taken, in this case, meditation practice. Uh, but that obviously equally applies to people who've decided to go home and, and have their entheogenic journeys at home just set setting, have reasonable, responsible people around, make sure you have someone who can keep you safe and, uh, you know, do your mental alterations through meditation or whatever as skillfully as you possibly can with appropriate support. My best advice.
Yeah, and not necessarily advocating for theogenic use or anything. It's obviously something you make as your own decision. But I just thought I would add that in because uh, the same stuff applies to um, that kind of world, which I I've already have plenty of reports. The number of people are taking this as an opportunity to uh, do some journeying. Just be appropriately careful and realize that that the mind state we may be going into some of this with may not always be the best. So, right? And set and setting are important for meditation and the other things as well. Mm -hmm. Yes, we're, it's, a, it's a very interesting set at the moment, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to put it mildly. Okay, thank you very much. Now, some people are dying uh, in certain yeah. places. We know that. And mm -hmm. uh, other people uh, may be uh, facing the prospect of their own death. Yep. What would you say to somebody who came to you and said, Daniel, I think I'm dying or Daniel, I know that I'm dying? Yeah, so definitely reach out to everybody that you want to make amends with. Right, Dying with a heavy heart is no good. Uh, say you're sorry, reconnect with family and friends to the degree that you're possible. They will appreciate that you tried, even if it doesn't necessarily go well. Um, think about who's going to come after you and clean up your digital life, your uh, financial affairs. Uh, so for example, I myself have a, a big file that my wife and some other people have access to that is Daniel's death. I have it on Evernote so I can share all the information. And it's basically an extremely long list of where to find passwords, of how, where are the bank accounts, of you know how to deal with various things. My will is extremely elaborate. It is detailed. It has multiple contingencies for various settings. And so if you possibly can, the people who come after, so I've gotten to be a part of not only with, when people die, but when their families and friends and communities then have to pick up and deal with that, make, make it as easy on them as you can. There's also something I think sort of therapeutic and empowering about doing that. It's there's a sense of sort of completion or wrapping things up or a settledness. I feel vastly more settled now that I have, if I die, I have good people who can properly distribute my things and take care of my life and my online accounts and the Dharma Overground and all of that. That's all set up. I know what will happen with all of those things. And, uh, and I feel good that I have done my part to help them because our lives are complicated these days. And so to and the people who come after you will really appreciate it uh, because it's a messy business and it can be very stressful. And if you've done your due diligence, if you have the wherewithal and the time and the, and the mental and physical capabilities still left to do that, it's a very, very responsible and I think in some ways empowering and honest and realistic thing to do. So those are um, my two they're sort of practical and they're kind of down to earth and maybe not profound, but still I think worth saying. That's your, if you want, plan for those that are left behind. Do you have a personal meditation or practice strategy for approaching or indeed the moment of your death? Uh, I have many times uh, visualized myself dying uh, a lot of different ways. Uh, um, I've actually died in dreams a number of times and then ended up as something else. I've crashed, you know, fallen, crashed into things, been killed, woken up when I was just killed or whatever. I've visualized myself dying in meditation countless times. It might be a bit morbid. I am a bit of an aversive type. I apologize if you're more of a, a happy type, even though I smile a lot. I still have a, a reasonable appreciation of the dark side of life. 
And I think I found that helpful um, in terms of realization when fruitions happen, when you disappear, it's kind of like dying, You're, particularly the suffering door where everything you think you are is kind of ripped away from you for a moment and then real, reality disappears and reconstitutes. I found that actually helpfully for, helpful for dying. That's not helpful for anyone who can't do that. But um, still, it's something that the meditation practice gave me that was of real benefit. And like being able to disappear into formless realms and have your body disappear and somehow think you're okay that was helpful. Um, but I actually want to divert slightly and tell a story. So back in the same year, I was working at the National AIDS Hotline with the Centers for Disease Control, which was quite an education and a very profound year of learning about human resilience and suffering and fear and loss and strength and love and all of that. Uh, I also was working doing research in the veterans hospital of the city where I was working and living in at the time. And I was in a, uh, for, and it was just asking them questions about the nursing care. It was just survey work, but it actually paid pretty well and was weirdly easy and was flexible. And I could do it just like two hours a day or something to earn a little bit extra money. And so it was a cool job. And I got to talk to some really interesting old veterans and about their lives. But the most interesting of them by far was this old guy who had been in Korea, had been in the Korean War. But he, he when I finished the survey, he said to me, um, why are you uh, administering surveys as a job? I said, oh, I'm thinking about going to medical school. And he said, oh, well, you might find my case interesting. Are you interested in hearing about my medical story? And I said, yes. And he said, I'm something incredibly rare and I'm called a flatliner. There are only a few of us that have ever been known you will probably ne never meet another person like me in your life. He said, um, since I was a kid, I've died many times. My heart will stop for three or four minutes at a time, and then it starts again. He said, I was one of the first people ever to get an experimental pacemaker um, because of my condition, because you can't always guarantee that the heart will come online in three or four minutes. So it's still a very dangerous condition. But I can't remember how many times he said he had died. I think it was 40 or 50. He said it would just be there and all of a sudden he would die and his heart would stop. And he said when his heart stopped, every single time he would have one of those near death experiences. And he said he had them all. He said he had the one, the classic one with the tunnel and the light and you're floating up and you hear the angels singing and feel the presence of God and go up to heaven and see your family there. And he said from those, it was really hard when I would suddenly find myself back in my body alive again. And he said he also had some experiences where he went down to hell and he heard people screaming and demons and very creepy situations. And then he also said he also had all kinds of other experiences of alien worlds, of, of strange fractal spaces that were hard to explain, that were extremely abstract and, and very odd. Uh, but the man had this otherworldly quality about him as he described all of this. And I said, do you have any fear of death? He said, no, none whatsoever. It's going to be okay. I know. I'm one of the rarest world experts you will ever find on this. Don't worry about it. It's fine. So that was wisdom I pass on secondhand from a person who would know better than anyone I know alive, probably. Uh, and I just find I, I reflect on that often and think it will be okay, he thinks. Um, so that's take it for what it's worth. Thank you.
you've commented quite extensively already on how to support those who may be sick or dying. You've talked about the ocean of fear, for example. An empathetic listening. Yeah. An empathetic listening. Do you have any further comments on that topic? How best, with your experience, one could support someone who's sick or someone who's dying, say a loved one or a neighbor or whoever one might be around? Do you have any further comments on things you have seen work or thoughts on that? Or did you cover it comprehensively before? So A, listen and listen to what they think they need. And it may be very simple things. It may not be profound. Often it's easier for the rescuer in us to think we need to do something profound. Sometimes just listening is enough. Sometimes just being there without listening is enough. Sometimes the simplest of things like uh, helping someone to the bathroom or doing an errand for them if you can safely do that or whatever it is, I realize this is a hard time to be going out or making a phone call for them or something is, you know, that doesn't seem profound or powerful, but to the degree that they have decision-making capacity and can help drive what's going on, I would listen to them and ask them what they need. And so each situation is going to be very, very different because, and realize that those, what they need may change minute to minute, right? Or hour to hour, particularly if they're in the dying process and just someone's witnessing presence and realizing that To be a witness to death is a very strange thing. And to be able to sit with it yourself, if you find sitting with death without doing anything about it very difficult, you're not alone. Just realize that's also an extremely common reaction. One of the things that made working in emergency medicine vastly easier in the face of the staggering amount of pain, suffering, death, and destruction we saw is that we knew exactly what we could do we could do it, we knew our limits, and then the things we couldn't do, we knew exactly that what that was through experience and training, I knew, you know, and we understood when mortality was simply going to win. That I, uh, we knew, and we were good at that. We had training in that. The reverse, where you're simply a family member or a friend sitting with someone, and there may be very, very little you can do, and you don't really know what might have been able to have been done or what you could have done or what maybe some doctors should be doing or shouldn't be doing. And all of that uncertainty, uh, just recognize it is very commonly reported that that is extremely difficult. And when I've sat with dying people and not been in the emergency medicine doctor role, where I'm running around at a million miles an hour doing all kinds of things and extremely busy and feeling like I'm doing my part and my best, just sitting there not doing that is challenging. And just recognize for yourself that that may be extremely challenging and that is normal. That is a normal feeling to have. So it can at least help normalize that. And the feeling of impotence or anger or uncomfortableness or embarrassment that you may not be able to do more or embarrassment for the person. So it's also common to feel embarrassment for the person who's dying. We're not supposed to die. We're not supposed to be sick. We're not supposed to be weak, right? That's a weird feeling to have. And yet, you know, if someone can't control their bowel movements or someone's vomiting or someone can't breathe or they can't talk or they're, they have altered mental status, you can feel embarrassment for them. Just realize all those sorts of feelings and you can feel embarrassed for yourself that you don't know what to do, that you may not understand what's best and you may not. And, and if you're feeling anger that you're sure something should be done or the doctors or nurses should be doing something and they're not, just be kind to them uh, if you possibly can. They generally are good people. Hospital administrators, 
government officials, usually good people, but the people on the front lines, really generally very good people. There are exceptions. Okay, we all meet the surly doctor who's got a personality disorder or whatever, or nurse or whatever, but the vast majority of them really, really, really do want to help you and really, really, really are trying their best. So be kind to them if you possibly can and listen to them as well. They will appreciate that. Even if you don't agree with them, take the time to give them the space to say what they need to say and think is important to say also. And uh, and make sure yourself, if you're supporting someone, make sure you have someone to support you. So make sure you have someone you can debrief with, that you can download some of that with, who's the kind of person who's good at listening to that. And so you may also find yourself in that role. If someone is right on the front lines of someone dying, they very well made, need someone to listen to them who's not on the front lines, because everybody on the front lines, they'll be coping in their own way um, and with each other, but they may need someone who's not overwhelmed. They feel that isn't they aren't going to be an, you know, an additional burden on that they can talk to. The other thing I would say is around a sense of humor. A sense of humor is critical in these times, even among things that seem not like laughing matters. I can tell you that as healthcare workers, we have extreme, we have what to lay people seem like extremely dark, twisted, sometimes even seemingly cruel, heartless, insensitive, or whatever senses of humor. I apologize for that, but realize that it is a better coping mechanism than some of the other ones. And sometimes being able to get it out and say it in some humorous context does help release something. I do not make apologies for terrible humor that's really sick and inappropriate, but I, uh, necessarily, but realize it also comes with the territory. A gallows humor is something that helps you get through the day none of us came to that because we really wanted to have this dark, twisted humor. It's, it's, it is a skillful coping mechanism better than a lot of the other ones. So have some patience and understanding of that. Uh, if you find yourself around people who are dealing with this in a way that seems humorous, that seems inappropriate to you, realize that it, it, it may be okay. And similarly, if you have a super dark sense of humor about this, just realize not everybody's going to tolerate that well, right? And that's maybe okay too. That's not where they are. That's not what they're up for. So um, yeah, that also comes to mind. I think one of the tricky things about that fight, fight, freeze sort of response is that one doesn't always know one's having those responses. Yes. One can behave insensitively, let's put it that way. Yes. In a way that you wouldn't normally be so insensitive, but you're not in full capacity. You're not in, you don't have your full capacity of awareness, really, of, of sort of conscious higher brain function. Yes, that is a good point. Yeah. One could be knee jerk, you know, using humor to really relieve oneself, which frightens the three or four other people who are in isolation with you, for instance, and the sort of net effect is not one you intended. And the net effect makes you feel bad. So you've got it off your chest, but now you realize the impact and now you feel bad about having frightened everybody else. And so it's this is one of the hard things, is, I think, is to have that awareness and attention. And also, and I think this is where meditation is one of the things that can give you this, but not the life experience, I think, in general, is to is to understand that there are storms that are going to go through your body and your yeah. emotions and your awareness and to be OK with not feeling OK all the time. 
you know, not yes. constantly automatically trying to regulate your 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 mood and state, because that automatic or regulation it. can cause more harm than harm than you intended it to. Yeah, definitely true. And when the storms move through, the message the storms can tell us is that we will always feel this way. Now this is the new normal. We're always going to be incredibly angry or incredibly sad or incredibly scared or whatever it is. And that's not true. Actually, by feeling them, they tend to move through faster. There are exceptions, but, uh, you know, if we're re-traumatizing ourselves. But in general, that is true. And crying is good. Crying clearly moves through stuff. Being able to let your body shake a little bit is good. And finding a space where you can do that is good. Uh, so I have a very weird one. Like, I find it pretty hard to cry because of my upbringing. This is going to sound totally strange to some people. Weirdly enough, if I watch episodes of Glee, <laughs> the singing moves. It's really embarrassing. But the, the, the singing moves me so much that it actually helps break loose tears. I, I know that sounds so. So realize if you have some weird thing like that, it's OK. It's unlikely uh, as embarrassing as mine. <laughs> Um, so uh, the other thing is uh, related to cycles. You, you alluded to this definitely. If, and I may have said this earlier, but I can't remember it. I want to make sure I say it. If people are in different phases of the cycles of grief, which is very likely, like if you're in anger and they're in denial, wow, is that a setup for conflict? You know, or if you're in grief and they're in bargaining or what, whatever. So different people are going to move through these stages differently. And just be sensitive to that because you can think, oh, now I'm in this phase. Everybody should be in this phase with me. Everybody should be in anger. Everybody should be in bargaining. Everybody should be in denial. Everybody should be in acceptance. They're not going to be. And you're not going to be either. You're going to move in and out of each of these. If you think you're in acceptance and you fully accepted this, no, you haven't actually. You're going to fall back. Just try to be as, as polite and sensitive as you possibly can. We're all going to need our best manners. Uh, and finding that balance of stiff upper lip and carry on or whatever and being honest is going to be a trick. But slow down in your communication, take breaks, find distance if things are getting tense, go back and, and try to get to the sadness or the hurt or the anger or the fear or the sense of hopelessness or impotence or disempowerment or loss more as, as directly as you can as feelings. Feeling language will probably serve you better than communicating through lots of numbers and facts and figures. Some people need to communicate sort of that way. Okay, I get it. But to the degree that you're able to like feel some of the more embarrassing, less easy, more challenging feelings that some of us are feel we shouldn't feel or something uh, is important. And recognizing that if you're feeling a lot of anger, there may be some sadness or fear under it. If you're feeling a, you know, a lot of irritation, maybe there's some whatever under it. Right? Often we, we have a sort of a secondary feeling that isn't that we have to sort of go through. And then we sort of finally drop down to that and the other feeling and recognize that the people around you are going to be doing the same thing. So you may have to deal with some of their bargaining and anger, like, and let that kind of blow through the conversation or the space you're in before they're able to cry or before they're able to just really say, Hey man, I love you or whatever, or whatever, you know, whatever it is like to get to the, to get to some of the, the deeper stuff that feels better, right? Cause people would drop to those deep level emotions. It usually actually feels pretty good in the room. Suddenly, like the, the dynamic shifts and you're like, oh, that feels honest. That feels real. OK, I can connect with that. And not all of us are good at equally connecting with all of those feelings. Right. So we have our own stuff 
in terms of what we don't resonate well with. Um, but just realize there, there's usually a temporal component where you have to just kind of let some of the others move through. And it may take more time than you think it needs to, to drop down to the better feeling, if deeper feelings. So many people are limiting their social contact uh, all around the world and finding themselves in isolation, whether that's self-imposed or imposed by their governments. What advice do you have for somebody who finds themselves uh, facing a period of extended seclusion? Well, thank God for the internet. I mean, right, so this is gonna be vastly better if you can see other faces, hear other voices, see somebody smiling back at you or crying or connecting or whatever. So I would utilize that to the, the degree that you're able with hopefully not driving everybody crazy with it. But, you know, like, yeah, reach out to people because you're not the only one. Re recognize there are now millions of people on the planet who are very alone and feeling very cut off and don't have anything like their normal level of social stimulation from work, from going out, from restaurants, from whatever they do. And so you're nothing resembling alone. There are plenty of people who have that and, and capitalize on that. Reach out, use social media. Uh, a lot of social media has serious problems, right? It can be a serious time suck, an echo chamber for strange ideas. Uh, you know, they're yeah, they're stealing all your data and they're user, using you for advertising. Okay, all that stuff's true. And by the way, hopefully it will be of tremendous help for getting you through anyway. So realize that, yeah, all the stuff about the problems of social media are there. And and also be doubly um, cautious of particularly text, right? So a lot of people, text people can be sort of more edgy, more something. It's not the same as face-to-face. -face. And we don't have the, you know, the emotional read on it. So just be gentle interpreting people's texts and very gentle in the way you react to that because there's something about typing that brings out this other side of people as everybody knows. And the, Dar the Dharma Overground in particular has been a fascinating example of, right, if people could be pretty harsh to each other or, you know, the um, another great example of people being very harsh in text, uh, you know, the speculative non-Buddhists or whatever, right? So it can, it can do this thing, right? So in the Dharma world, I've gotten to see a lot of that, even among people who think of themselves as very, very good, skillful people. And yet that's what happens. And so just be doubly careful because your receiving of it is probably going to be altered by the stress and their writing of it is probably going to be altered by the stress. And so try to do as little online textual damage as possible. We've covered a lot of ground now and I think we'll soon be bringing it to an end. But I, I'm curious and I'm not sure if uh, this question's a particularly intelligent one to ask, but there you go. Of course, you're, you're very well known in the meditation world for your level of meditation attainment. In the Theravadan four-path model, in your own personal attainment have claimed to have achieved that fourth level of arhat attainment i'm curious uh, from a personal point of view from the vantage point or non-vantage point of an arhat what <laughs> um how are you experiencing all of this yeah so the big differences are first uh you know so the big the big three changes were the sense of doer changed to the sense of the universe unfolding, right? So intentions, which previously seemed to be me, that would precede actions, seemed to be, you know, bef before they were, seemed like I, me, mine, and now they just seem like a another thing happening in the room. 
Uh, there is the sense of nowhere that changed, right? So that it used to be the sense of somewhere in here was this little point that was knowing everything in some kind of way. Like there would be the sensations of breathing and then there would be the note or the knowledge of it here that was the real knowing rather than just the sensations being where they are doing their own thing, right? So that was a change. And then there's the change of the sense of continuity, right? So the sense of continuous existence, right? The sense that there really is this stable thing that lives and is, and it's the same moment to moment. So those three illusions got seen through by just noticing those aspects, noticing mental impressions and intentions and sensations. You can see these change. It's not that weird. But your question really means, for most people, what are the emotional implications, right? Because that's what we're dealing with right now. So the emotional, what were the emotional implications of this? And how do they affect, particularly in a time of crisis, the sense of the thing? So I can definitely tell you this mammal still has adrenaline and cortisol, right? So those pathways are still there. Uh, like they're, you know, uh, when I'm super stressed, sweat can still come, heart goes faster, feelings in the chest, stomach, throat, face, muscles, whatever. Oh, those reactions still occur. Uh, and they've occurred in relationship to this. So every single day, there are plenty of sensations that indicate this mammal is, is stressed by this from a very just sort of physiological point of view. Uh, you can feel it. Um, I'm pretty good at handling stress, right? I wouldn't have been able to be an ER doctor. So, but I had that before I had all of this, right? So, and, and some people are just better at handling stress. I'm pretty good at it. I'm, I, I actually get sort of hyper-functional in response to stress, that's actually one of my coping mechanisms is an ability to do, act, think, slow down and be clear and decisive and all of that. It's one of the ways this, it's partly just stuff I was given, uh, you know, from my family. My family's kind of like this. It's, it's how they pretty much almost all of them are. And that also said training, professional training. So I had a lot of professional training to deal with stress and a lot of actual real world experience. I'm a veteran of incredibly stressful life or death situations. And that makes this easier to handle. So I can't entirely cleanly tease out what is a result of just genetics and the way I was raised, right? My dad's hyperfunctional, et cetera. I had that example growing up and, and then professional training and experience and practice. And I can't tell you for certain which is which. So just to be honest about that. But I can tell you that in terms of the experience of it. So for example, this is a pretty big room you see behind me, you can hear the echo of it. Well, the room is fine, right? E even though there may be some little sensations in here or here, or, you know, the sense the heart's a little more or whatever, the vast majority of experience is okay. And there's, you know, sights are all okay. Sounds are all okay. And that's most of the space that this body inhabits is all the mind from, you know, I don't want to get ontological, but from an experiential point of view is all experience. Let's just say that. And so that is better, right? So that proportionality is way better, right? That these sensations of stress uh, that occur as a result of a mammal being in a stressful situation or dealing with, you know, impending doom or marauding gangs or Supply, supply breakdown or possibly not being able to breathe in a few days from exposures I've had from recent travel. I, you know, I still could have this thing. I could be dead tomorrow. I don't know. Uh, but, um, you know, those sensations of stress, which are real, are in this much wider experiential context. 
They also are not made to be anything they're not. So the uh, the mental elaboration is substantially lower. It's not that the, the body can't recognize a stressful sensation and have this little little bit of feedback, but even a little bit of feedback is just these teeny wispy little things, right? So the default mode is actually tuned to a, a really different way from how most people experience the world, which is a lot of time people are walking around with their default mode, highly activated default mode network in the brain, and they're sort of lost in rumination and thoughts of past and future. And they're getting what sensate data they need to process and function, but they're not really living in an embodied way in the physical space they find themselves in, in the body, with mental world just being these little wispy things that occur in that much bigger space, right? That's not how most people are walking around. And that is how I'm walking around. That's the default. It's not like I can't tune out everything and go into my internal world when I need to. But the walking around default is actually flipped from how the default mode network typically is. And so that is really nice because the rumination, the exacerbation of, you know, the ordinary assessment of threat or the recognition, okay, I need to get some, maybe, you know, today I'll be building water storage tanks to store 250 gallons of reserve water in case the water system goes. I don't know if that's absurd prepping or just reasonable precautions for, to keep me and my loved ones safe. I don't know, but that's my project today. And there's a little bit of stress about that. Just, just thinking about maybe our water supply gets cut off. I don't know if that will happen, but it's happened before, you know, for sometimes up to a day or so at a time. Um, just in normal circumstances, right? And so um, being able to, you know, recognize, okay, there's some stress there, but it's very proportional and it's managed very well by the brain. There's very, very little of anything that's really taking it and magnifying it through additional thought. So that's way better. Um, how this applies to anyone else, you know, or whatever, you know, I don't, I don't know, but um, that, that's my experience now. And I would definitely choose this way over the other way. It's a lot nicer. It's it was worth the time and the stress to get it, but again, I wouldn't then suddenly take your COVID vacation uh, at home as push for this thing, right? Because that attitude is going to miss the point. That it is literally there is no realization beyond these sensations here. There is no realization beyond colors and sounds and touch and thoughts arising and changing. There is no other Daniel, there's no future Daniel from an experiential point of view. And it's the experiential point of view that gets you the realization. It's this immediate moment changing, changing, changing as it is, clearly perceived as it is. And so if, if you're going on your, you know, our hot quest or whatever, to the degree that you can manage that future mind stuff and to see those future thoughts, those goal analysis or comparison or judgment or whatever, just arising in the space now, that's how, that's that's getting closer to this. That's the direction you need to be in, not comparison or judgment or future or planning or stress or pushing for that you imagine is over there. It isn't. This is to the degree that anything is. This changing thing occurs maybe is a better word. This occurs. That's excellent yeah. advice. That's excellent advice. Thank you, Daniel. As we come to an end of this special episode of the podcast, do you have any parting comments on any of the things we've discussed or anything that's still left to be said? Yeah, be safe. Take this seriously. Please follow public health guidelines and, and even more. If, if they're not telling you to shelter in place and stay at home and you possibly can, do. Uh, again, I think the sixth fleet thing is, is a joke. I, I think it lives in the air longer than they're saying it's clearly highly infectious by all the all the math looks like a, a really really infectious thing like measles 
And, you know, we've forgotten what that's like because we've done such a good job generally of preventing it. But look it up. Look up measles in unvaccinated population, read about it, and then go, oh, wait, COVID, you know, coronavirus is doing the exact same thing. So uh, ju just take this seriously and be safe and, and keep your wits about you to the degree that that's possible and, and try to be reasonable at home with everybody and understanding as they go through this because um, it's likely going to be a mess. Anyway, I would love it if it wasn't, but... Yeah. Daniel Ingram, thank you very much. Thank you so much. And good luck to you and everybody listening. And I hope we all get through this as best we can. Thank you for listening to this special edition of the Guru Viking podcast. For more information and more episodes in this series, visit www.guruviking.com.